Well, uh, we are returning to our series in 1 Corinthians this morning, so let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are uh, actually going to be looking at verses 23, from chapter 10, 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. And you might remember that Paul has been uh, addressing problems that result um, because of a misunderstanding of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. Uh, the, Christian, the Corinthian Christians have reached out to Paul with a pressing question that was very relevant in the context in which they found themselves. Uh, the pressing issue was, is it, is it allowable, is it permissible is it okay for Christians to eat meat that has been offered to idols in a temple? You remember that meat was often sold in surplus at the market after having been used as part of rituals in, say, the temple of Apollo in Corinth. And so the question is, are we free as Christians to eat or not? Now, that's not a question that you and I uh, wrestle with. I can't imagine that any of us have gone to the meat department in Giant Eagle and stood over uh, the meat, vexed over the question, is it okay for me to consume this meat or not? Because it may have been offered to an idol. That's not, that's not necessarily relevant to us. However, the underlying issue is very, very relevant for each and every one of us. Because the underlying question here is, what is Christian freedom? And what are its limits? What are we free to do and not free to do? And how do we go about making those decisions? How do we make those judgments? Now, this has been a major theme in Paul's letters all the way since chapter 8. And he's here bringing it to its conclusion with a summary argument uh, where he, he sums up pretty much all that he's been saying. And so he comes almost full circle back to the issue of food being offered to idols and the legitimate limits of Christian liberty. Now, before we look at the text, I think it might be helpful for us to just get a sense of the flow of Paul's argument and some of the big themes we find in these verses. So as we read them, be on the lookout for the theme of the conscience. Okay? Just notice with me the repeated references to conscience in this passage. Verse 25 Eat whatever is sold without raising any question of conscience. Verse 27, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And verse 28, for the sake of conscience. And then two times in verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So you see, what Paul is wrestling with in this passage, what he's teaching about. He is teaching us about liberty of conscience, its nature, and its limits. This is, I think, a vital, pressing issue for us to wrestle with and to try to understand, you know, particularly right now. And we need our thinking and we need our consciences to be directed by Scripture to enable us to navigate the challenges before us in a way that is faithful and honoring to the Lord. Now, as a little bit of a background 
to help us understand what's going on here. In the Corinthian church, there were these two groups. Uh, these two groups could be, can be found really in any period of church history in churches. The first group, we'll say, is a group of Christians with an underactive conscience. An underactive conscience. They were thrilled with their liberty. They loved the message of freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the law. No longer being under law, but under grace. And that message of freedom and liberty, it really resonated with them to the point that it they almost couldn't hear anything else. It was the dominant motif in terms of how they lived their Christian lives. And so we find that they would appeal to their freedom and to their liberty of conscience in order to justify their actions. But in fact, as Paul has been pointing out, this group was in real danger of a misapplying real gospel liberty. And so they started to they started to buck and kick uh, against any and all restraints on their behavior. They were becoming what we will call libertines. And that misguided understanding of liberty led to license. And then that license eventually led to licentiousness. So they were justifying wrong behavior with appeals to Christian liberty. And so Paul is writing to inform their consciences and to teach them on what basis their freedoms may legitimately be restricted. That's the first group. But there was a second group in the church of, of Corinth. Not those with an underactive conscience, but instead, these guys had an overactive Conscience. These believers were, you know, very concerned with upright moral living, living by the book. In fact, going beyond the book, right? Adding to what the scriptures say, adding additional regulations and restrictions which are not required of the people of God. And then what they did is they began to judge those within the church who did not meet their exacting standards. And so in contrast to the libertines over here, you've got the legalists over on this side. And as we work through the passage, we're going to see, I think, the Apostle Paul alternating back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, as he deals with both groups, legalists and libertines. We're going to see that back and forth in verses 23 through 30. And through these verses, we're going to come across a, a series of case studies. Like Paul puts before us a series of case studies in verses 23 through 30 to spell things out for us as he deals with the libertines and the legalists. And then when you get to verse 31 of chapter 10 into verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, excuse me, we have uh, the Apostle Paul laying out for us four core principles. Okay, so that's our outline for today. We're going to look at uh, four case studies and four core principles. Uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and read and uh, pick it up in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thank, uh, thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. We all love the parable of the prodigal son. We're probably familiar with the details of that wonderful story, but let's remember a few of them as we get started here. You remember there were two brothers and the younger brother, he demanded his inheritance and then left town. He went off to the far country to let loose and live however he pleased, to satisfy the desires of his heart. But eventually what happened, he, he eventually hit rock bottom and he found himself broke, alone, and desperate. See that desperation in the fact that he is and a pigsty eating slop with a bunch of pigs. And it's there, Luke tells us, he, he came to his senses. He came to himself. He, he woke up and he had the thought that even his father's servants were far better off than he currently was. And so he made the decision, I'm, I'm going to go back. Not with the hope that his father would ever receive him back as a son, but he thought perhaps, perhaps he might take me back as a hired hand, as a slave. Do you remember that as he's approaching, even while he's still far off, the father sees him and the father goes running to him. And he wraps his arms around him and embraces him and says, put a robe on him, put a ring on him, put shoes on his feet and let's have a party. Rose's celebration. We, we love it. It's a wonderful moment in the story. And perhaps one of the reasons some of us love it is because maybe we've had our own prodigal son experiences. We've, we've wandered off and only later been convicted uh, by our sin. You know, we've come to ourselves. But we wonder if, if God will ever welcome us back as we are. And to our surprise and delight, we actually we find out that the Father rejoices. The Father rejoices when we repent and return to Him. We love this story because maybe in a lot of ways we identify with the younger brother. 
um, but also because it has so much to teach us about the God of the gospel. But let's not forget that there is another brother, right? the older brother. And he's furious. Uh, he is angry at what he has just seen take place. And he approaches his father later. And notice the language Luke uses. He says, you know, this son of yours, he can't even call him his brother. This son of yours, you know, went, went off and squandered everything you gave him. Meanwhile, my whole life, all of these years, I've been faithful to you. I've served you. I have worked hard for you. See, and you've never done this for me. You're throwing a party for him, celebration at his return. Despite all I've done, I've never seen such treatment. He feels, he feels entitled. He feels as though his father owes him something for his commendable performance. Now, very often, I think, when we take a look at the parable of the prodigal son, we, we ask the question, okay, these two brothers, which one am I? Right? The, the libertine or the legalist? But here's the challenge that I, I think we need to notice as we get into this text in 1 Corinthians. That these, yes, these two brothers, they represent two extremes. You've got the older legalist brother who thinks that on the basis of his performance that his father owes him something. You've got the younger libertine brother who, who goes off and does whatever he desires. Okay, So you've got these two extremes. But I think the challenge of the parable actually is that you can have both extremes lurking in your heart at the very same time. And don't you find that to be true in your own life? That you can have both of these extremes. We can be both the legalist and the libertine at different times and to different degrees. And here's how that can play out in our lives. You know, we, we think of ourselves and uh, our desires, and we can make all kinds of excuses. We can give ourselves all kinds of leeway, all kinds of you know, uh, grace uh, to excuse ourselves and to, to get what we want. But then we look over and we say, can you, can you believe this other guy? That he would say this, that he would do this. I mean, what a wretch. How offensive that he would live that way. You see, libertines with respect to ourselves and often legalists with respect to others. We need to understand that that's a real possibility as we approach this, this text in Corinthians. Uh, because in Corinth, it's true, there were these particular factions in the church, as there can be in our churches too. You know, we've got, we got these two groups of legalists on the one hand, libertines on the other. And be sure, they can, they can tear a church apart. But before we look at this passage, I, I want to warn us not to think that because in this portion or that portion uh, that Paul is addressing either the legalist or the libertine, that he's not talking to you or to me. Because, you know, maybe we think this, this isn't particularly a struggle that we have. I think the truth is we can be both albeit in different uh, degrees and at different times. And so as we turn our attention to these case studies that Paul gives uh, about libertines and legalists, I want to urge us to take, this is what I'm really after, I'm urging us to, for all of us to take all of the medicine of God's word. We need the antidote for both legalism and being a libertine, don't we? We need to be treated as both by the word of God. So let's, let's turn our attention to verses 23 through 30 and, and get started here in verses 23 and 24. 
Notice Paul starts by speaking to the libertines in Corinth, quoting them. All things are lawful. How many? But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Again, Paul is quoting a slogan that we have heard before from the Corinthian Christians who were slinging this slogan around. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. That's what they were saying. We're free in Christ. We're not under the law. All things are lawful for me. They were rejoicing in the freedom Christ brings, the the liberty they enjoyed. But Paul is trying to help them understand if gospel freedom and liberty of conscience morphs into all things are lawful for me, it can lead to a life unconstrained by any kind of consideration of others or moral boundaries. And so Paul is saying, okay, there is a sense in which you are exactly right. All things are lawful, but you must understand that not all things are helpful. Not all things are edifying. Not everything you do is building others up. There are limits to your liberty in the Christian life. See what Paul is doing as a pastor. I think Paul is exposing the deep flaw within libertine thinking. Take a look again at verse 24. It says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See what he, he sees. He, he sees right through them, doesn't he? He's saying, look, when, when you're taking a stand For your liberty on an issue like this, don't you see that you're only thinking about yourself? That you are putting yourself front and center and you're not really considering the good of your neighbor, the concerns of your neighbor, how your actions might affect your neighbor. You've adopted an understanding of liberty that is at the end of the day incompatible with biblical ethics, which always, always takes into consideration your neighbor. You see, liberty isn't license for you to do whatever you think is right without any further qualification. See, their their liberty, this libertine liberty, was centered on self that puts us right at the center of all of our considerations And leads us not to really think about anyone else. What they're thinking. What they're feeling. How they might be affected by our actions at all. And so, Paul is saying, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See, God wants us, dear friends, to be thinking not, first of all, about ourselves. But about the welfare and the well-being of others. To put consideration of them first as a priority. Because remember from chapter 8 going back to the beginning of this whole section in 1 Corinthians. The principle that Paul hammered away at again and again is that love limits liberty. Love limits liberty. Love for others imposes limitations on our freedom. Now, you, you can imagine this letter you know, being read to the Corinthian congregation for the first time. You imagine this, this manuscript has been delivered and it's being read before the assembly. 
And uh, the legalists, they are really eating up verses 23 and 24. You can imagine approving nods uh, as, as Paul's words are being read in these verses. At last, those selfish libertines are getting uh, what they need to hear. They're being put in their place by the Apostle Paul. Well, if that was happening, I, I think it's safe to say that those approving nods ceased when the reader of the text got to verses 25 and 20 through 27. Because now, all of a sudden, the legalists are in Paul's sights. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Quoting Psalm 24, 1. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, so he's now talking to this group in the Corinthian church who believe that no sincere Christian can eat meat that has been offered to an idol under any circumstances whatsoever. They'd say that's that's just outright compromise with the world. Don't eat, don't touch, uh, don't drink, don't do that, stop it. That was, that was their mentality, just stop it. And now Paul is saying very directly to them, look, when you go to the market, or when an unbelieving friend, neighbor, invites you over for a meal, don't question about where that meat came from. Don't worry about the possibility of it originating in the temple of Apollos, or... Aphrodite or some other pagan deity. Idols, remember, Paul has told them, are nothing. They're nothing. Eat the meat with a clear conscience. And now you can see the legalists would be upset with the Apostle Paul. But Paul insists on gospel liberty and is insistent on shattering man-made unbiblical regulations. And then while they're still, you know, reeling from the challenge of Paul, you see what he does. He turns back to address, in the third place, the Libertine Party once again. This is verse 28 and the beginning of verse 29. Take a look at it. But if someone says to you, so now a new case study, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Okay, so you see, at the other end of the spectrum, the libertines were indulging themselves in light of their conviction that idols are, you know, empty lumps of wood or stone. But they never once thought about the implications of their eating with someone else. How it might affect them, somebody looking on. And so Paul invents this scenario, right? Somebody invites you over for a meal and you're seated at the dinner table and uh, the host informs you, hey, I know, I know you, that you, uh, you're one of those Christians. You, you claim to follow uh, Curios and uh, I just thought I'd better let you know because I respect you that uh, I believe that this meat may very well have been uh, offered to an idol in one of the temples. I just, I just thought you should know that before we uh, share a meal together. Okay, now you're in a real pickle, and Paul's saying, what do you do? Well, he spells it out for you, doesn't, doesn't he? He doesn't leave you guessing. He says, don't eat. Do not eat. And he says, uh, 
do it for the sake of conscience, not yours, but his. See, now the unbeliever thinks that if you eat meat knowing that it was offered to an idol, that must mean that in some way, Christ does not have your ultimate allegiance. That Christ maybe just fits right alongside of these other Roman deities uh, in the pantheon. That Christ is not preeminent and alone Lord of your life. But remember, Paul has already told us that whether it's been offered to an idol or not doesn't really matter from a Christian point of view. But the non-Christian thinks that it does. And it could, it could uh, be a stumbling block. And so Paul is saying that he might, he might be led to think that you take your allegiance to Christ lightly if you so happily indulge yourself in eating meat that you know was offered to an idol. Okay, so we're seeing, hopefully we're seeing the situation clearly here. If you, if you stand on your liberty and your freedom, Paul is saying you're shattering your witness. You're shattering your Christian witness. This man thinks you are ready to be disloyal to Christ just in order to, to fill your stomach, to have a meal. And so Paul says, for his sake, for the sake of his conscience, you know, think through your behavior so that you might not bring disrepute upon the name of Jesus Christ. You know, his thinking may be all wrong, your neighbors. His thinking may be misguided in some ways. But if you're going to cause confusion about what it means to follow Christ, then you need to be ready to limit your liberty and you need to think very, very carefully. See, we need to think about the consciences of others. Paul is urging us. And notice he's talking here not only about fellow brethren within the household of faith, he's talking here about somebody outside of the church. We need to be mindful of their conscience. Be concerned about the way our behavior affects other people. And then second, uh, in the second half of, of uh, verses 29 through 30, see what Paul does. He switches back again. He turns back one more time to the legalists. You See how he just keeps going back and forth. Libertine and legalist, libertine and legalist. Now this time, it's the legalists again in verses 29 through 30 with two questions. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Yes, Paul is saying, there are limits to our freedom. Concern for others ought to override our desire to have our way, to please ourselves. But here's an important qualification to that principle, Paul is saying. We can put it this way. Beware the tyranny of the weaker brother. Beware the tyranny of the weaker brother. Limiting your liberty for the sake of others does not mean that you must surrender your freedom to believe and act according to the word of God. And we need to understand that. There is a, maybe to make this concrete, okay, I think there's a, a version of this in our culture right now which says something along these lines. Look, if, if you love me, if you love me, that is going to mean 
that you embrace my lifestyle choices. You approve of my lifestyle choices, no matter what. No matter if along the way, you have to compromise and give up your biblical convictions. Friends, that's not liberty, that's tyranny. That's that's what that is. Why should I, see what Paul's saying, why should my liberty to live in submission to Jesus Christ be determined by someone else's conscience? Okay, so limiting liberty is not to be a means of compromise. And so you see, uh, in that quick overview here, how Paul, I think, avoids both extremes. Nobody really gets off the hook here. Libertines uh, who misunderstand Christian freedom and liberty of conscience need to embrace and apply the idea that love limits liberty in the Christian life. And legalists who want to put restrictions on themselves and others need to come to terms with the true freedom and the liberty of conscience that we have in Christ Jesus. Okay, but maybe we're still asking the question, because after all, we've been sticking with um, the meat market issue. Maybe we're still asking, okay, how, how does this apply to us? How do I know when I should stand on my rights and liberties as a Christian, and when I should voluntarily limit my freedom? When is it wise to to hold back and alter my behavior? When is it necessary for me to say, no, I must take my stand here? I think Paul's anticipating that because he gets very practical in chapter 10, uh, verse 31, through chapter 11, verse 1. He gives us a set of principles, core principles that we can take with us and apply to these difficult questions that we have to ask in our daily lives. So let me just walk us through these, these four principles. The first one is the doxological principle. Okay, look at verse 31, the doxological principle. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for what purpose? With what aim in view? What, What is it that we are striving for? Paul says, the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. Even down to the daily mundane things of eating and drinking. It should all be about God's glory. How you live. Paul is teaching us here. This is what you are for. You are for God's glory. And so we should be asking ourselves as we weigh tough decisions... Will God be glorified in this? Will he be honored by me giving up my liberty in this situation? Or will he be glorified uh, as I I take a stand because gospel liberty is at stake here? Uh, Before the eyes of the watching world, will God be glorified by this decision? That, my friends, is the driving concern of followers of Jesus Christ. So here is a fundamental principle to direct you in your decision making. Will this decision, will this action, will these words, will this behavior bring glory to God? That's the doxological principle. And then the second principle, uh, I'm calling the edification principle. Take a look at verses 32 and 33. 
Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. So first we need to ask, will this glorify God? Then we need to ask, will this give offense to to Jew or Greek or to the church of God? Will it give offense to outsiders, unbelievers, or to the church of Jesus Christ? See, Paul, Paul tried with all of his might to please everyone in everything. Now, I think, I think in the current cultural moment that we find ourselves living in, where everybody is dividing along political and party lines, and where if you break line, you are immediately canceled or accused of being guilty of compromise. I think that if Paul found himself living today in the church of Jesus Christ, in the way that he sought to relate to people in the world, and the way that he sought to relate to people within the church, that Paul was going to be called a compromiser from both sides. Because why? Paul sought to please everyone in everything. Notice that. Not, not a people pleaser in the sense of compromising biblical mandates and biblical requirements. But he used the freedom he had as a Christian to please others. To serve others for Jesus' sake. The benefit of others took precedence over his own. And so that raises a whole set of other questions like, will this action, will this word, will it edify? Will it be good for others? Will it build them up? Will it encourage them? Will it help people? Or will it cause them to stumble? See, we must learn not to think first and only of ourselves and the consequences, consequences of our actions for ourselves. We must ask, is this something I'm free to do, but may give offense to others? Is this something that will only benefit me, or may it in some way benefit others? Am I being a blessing or a burden? Am I edifying my brothers and sisters in Christ? And so the doxological principle, the edification principle, and then thirdly, the evangelistic principle. Look at verse 33 again. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. See, what is it that Paul wants for others? What's his burning desire for everyone else in his life that's guiding his actions and his words among Jews and Gentiles and within the church of Jesus Christ? It's a concern for the gospel. It's a concern that everyone he knows might be saved. And so he was asking, is my behavior consistent with the gospel? If I were to share the good news of a, of a humble, servant-hearted, others-serving, legalism-denouncing Jesus, would my life and my words make that message plausible or laughable? was one of Paul's great concerns because he wanted people to be saved and so he's saying I want my life to reflect what the gospel by the grace of God does in a person's life who has willingly bowed the knee 
to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So the doxological principle, the edification principle, the evangelistic principle, and then fourthly and finally, the imitation principle. Take a look now at chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul simply says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul wants Christians to be like Christ in their thinking, in their moral choices, and in their their public and private lives. I remember one of the things Jesus said during his earthly ministry, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I think that's language Paul is picking up in verse 33. He seeks not his own advantage, but that of many, so that they might be saved. He is, in other words, imitating and reflecting the pattern and the mission of Jesus Christ himself. And he wants us, he wants the church to be like Christ, who relinquished his own liberties. That's what chapter 9 was saying. That's what Paul did in his own ministry in relation to the Corinthians, didn't he? He he gave up his rights for the good of the Corinthians and for the advancement of the gospel among them. Remember, he refused to take a stand on what was rightly his as an apostle. And in doing so, he was pursuing Christ-likeness. He was imitating Christ before the Corinthians. And he wants us to be like the one who gave himself up with nothing held in reserve for us and for our salvation. And he's saying to the Corinthians, this is... This is what I want for you. And I'm saying today to you as your pastor, this is what I want for us together to imitate Christ. And that means we don't have to speculate. Remember that, that, uh, I don't know what to call it, fad number of years ago with the WWJD bracelets. I'm not saying anything negative about that other than I think that's the wrong question. Because it leads to speculation. What would Jesus do? The better question for the Christian is, what did Jesus do? And that doesn't lead us to speculation. That leads us back to the scriptures to see, what is it that Jesus did for his people? He loved me and he gave himself for me. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. He came not to be served, but to serve. He put the needs of others first. He lived. Notice the pattern of Corinthians here. He lived for the glory of his father. He sought to build others up. He sought to edify. He came to seek and to save the lost. And that, that is the life we are called to imitate in Christ Jesus. It's the life God calls us to. To give up your liberty. To give up your very self for the glory of God, the edification of your neighbor, and for the salvation of others, because this is precisely what Jesus has done for you. See, all the while, without compromising, the liberty that you have to live for the glory of God. That's what Christian liberty is all about, isn't it? That's what liberty of conscience is all about. Freedom to live To the glory of God. This is what we are called to. As we follow the one. 
who loved us and gave himself for us. And so, dear friends, this is, this is what I, I pray for, for our church, that we together might imitate Christ in these ways, living for the glory of God, living for the edification of others, and living for the salvation of the lost. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that you would fix our eyes upon Christ Uh, Not the Christ of our imagining, but the Christ of Scripture. And we pray this morning that we would be reminded and remember that he loved us and gave himself for us. And then please enable us to begin to follow him in these ways. To live to your glory. To live for the building up of others. To seek the salvation of the lost. Strengthen us by your spirit individually and as a church together to imitate the Savior who laid down his life for us all. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.